This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to this week of Burn It All Down. It may not be the feminist sports podcast you want, but it's the feminist sports podcast you need. I'm Brenda Elsie, Associate Professor of History at Hofstra University, and I get to steer the ship today. Joined by Shereen Ahmed, freelance sports writer in Toronto, Lindsay Gibbs, sports writer at Think Progress in D.C., and Jessica Luther, independent writer and author of Unsportsmanlike Conduct, College Football, and the Politics of Rape in Austin, Texas. Once upon a time, or like 1980, legendary Liverpool manager Bill Shankly was interviewed, and the journalist began the question, football is a matter of life and death, to which he interrupted, it's much more important than that. (laughs) (laughs) Today, at Burn It All Down, unless otherwise specified, football means the kind played around the world, also known as soccer in the United States. And this week, we're going to talk NWSL finals, World Cup qualifiers, the revolt of different women's national teams, and we'll talk to two legendary Brazilian players, Sissy and Tafa. Just last night, we're recording on Sunday, Women's Professional Club Soccer League, the NWSL in the U.S. and Canada, finished its fifth season with a bang-up match between the Portland Thorns and North Carolina Courage. Lindsay, what are your thoughts on the season? (laughs) Well, you took my pun there, (laughs) bang-up, I must say. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Copyright, copyright. No, so yeah, as Brenda said that yesterday, Saturday, to be specific, since we don't know when you're listening to this. So on Saturday, the Portland Thorns beat the North Carolina Courage one to nothing in what was a could say, testy defense battle. (laughs) Lindsay Horan was the game's MVP. She scored the lone goal of the game for the Thorns. It was exciting for the league because the Thorns are by far the most successful team in the league. Attendance-wise is primarily what I'm talking about. They draw an average attendance of 17,653 fans per game, which is just phenomenal. It is about triple what the next highest team in the NWSL averages on a day-to-day basis. So it's there's a lot of attendance discrepancy in the league. But the Thorns are such a well-run organization. They have the most supportive fans and they've been one of the most talented teams in the league. They won the championship the first year and then now have won it in its fifth year. To have a women's pro league in its fifth year alone is a very great accomplishment. In the United States, the previous two leagues both folded after three years. So we're already in historic territory. It's 
time to analyze, to cheer on, to be critical, and to kind of figure out where the league is now and where it can go from here. I would like to, though, before we get into the really big picture stuff, just talk about this pretty ugly match that we saw yesterday. Shireen, I know you have some thoughts. I have some thoughts, and I will... (laughs) I will admit I'm an unabashed (laughs) Thorns fan. Christine Sinclair, who I love and who should be president of the world, is the (laughs) captain of the Canadian national women's team. She's our hero. We love her. And she, even her interview afterwards, and we'll link it to the show, actually said to the interviewer, to the journalist, that this might not have been the prettiest game to watch or the best game to watch. And yes, since he is right, I totally agree with her. This was a very, as Lindsay already said, and Brenda alluded to, choppy, rough. I mean, in my opinion, the ref lost control within the first 10 minutes and had to rain to get it back in. And I think it wasn't necessarily a situation of bad officiating. I just think the game got really out of hand really quickly. Within the first three minutes, Tobin Heath fouled Smith and of the North Carolina Courage, who ended up leaving about six or seven minutes later due to that shoulder injury. And her arm was in a sling. And it was a foul that should have been called. Like, you don't start calling fouls after 15 minutes to let people warm up. The whistle blows, the game starts. And I think that set the tone. And again, it happened. Tobin Heath fouled again, and she was carded on the second foul, which was pretty was pretty intense. So it's just the game didn't have the fluidity that we're used to seeing Portland play with. It didn't sort of have this dynamic like speed up, I guess you could say, in terms of the way that it was played. It was not pretty. It was scoreless until the second half. So a scoreless first half, you get pretty excited sometimes. In this case, I was just irritated and anxious. And I don't know, it just it really wasn't beautiful football. It wasn't. Yeah. And another part was the attendance was really poor, it should be said. So one of the things is that the NWSL has tried the last couple of years is neutral site finals. And honestly, unless it's in Portland, it seems like something the league is just not ready for. As I mentioned, the attendance numbers throughout the league, they've stabilized as an average attendance of around 5,000, but is down a couple hundred from where it was last year, I believe. So there's a very strong regular base coming but there's a long it it has a long way it needs to do to grow and the official attendance last night in orlando the game was in orlando it should be said who the orlando pride made the semifinals this year they had a great team with marta who i know we have some fans of here on the show and alex morgan were both you know just standout players for the orlando pride like they always are wherever they go but i think that it was just it was disappointing to me to see this was a big deal for the league that they had it on lifetime so the beginning of the year there was historic partnership announced with lifetime tv network so this was the very first year that every week you knew there was going to be an nwsl game on tv you know where it was going to be broadcast and what time it was going to be broadcast that was really really exciting and a big deal the lifetime was an original broadcaster for the wnba but had been out of broadcasting any type of live sporting events for a couple of decades now, or maybe not that long, but almost, but probably about 15, 16 years. I can't remember the exact date. Their partnership with the WNBA ended. But what Lifetime is, is Lifetime is also an equity partner in the league, which is really exciting. So they have actual, it's not just as one contract that they can get out of easily if they don't like the ratings. They're invested in seeing the league succeed as a whole, 
There were some fun things like Ellen DeGeneres and Julia Roberts were doing promos for this final, like everywhere. I mean, just some cool things to see, like a network promoting its women's soccer in this way. The women's Soccer League, it's been very difficult to get the fans from the U.S. Women's National Team invested in this league. It's just a very different mentality. The talent is there. The fans are there. I only made it to two games this year in North Carolina to see the courage, which was their first year in North Carolina. And I also saw, went to one Washington Spirit game. Unfortunately, the games are like an hour outside of the city. You can't get to them without, without a car. And that is tough. <laughs> but I think that it's just frustrating to me to see a final after such a marquee year with the broadcast partnership, with a new equity partnership, to see a final that, like we said, it fell flat on the field, but it was also off the field. The official announced attendance was around 8,000, but there's no way there were that many people in the stands. And, you know, it just kind of sucked, <laughs> Shereen. Yeah, just particularly one thing about Portland, it has one of the most beautiful soccer cultures I've ever seen, particularly in a North American city, I think the best. And one of the reasons too, is the men and women share the same stadium. It's not like the women are schlepped off to somewhere else. They use the same training facilities, they make it work with the team, the Timbers, and they they work it out. And I think that's part of what it is. It's not, you know, treating the women's side as a second class team. It's giving them their dues. And they have some, I mean, Amandine Henri is leaving now to go back to Lyon, France to play. But I mean, she's a world-class player. She's one of the, she's a French national. And my favorite, Nadia Nadim, who I love so much, who's a Danish national, is also going back to Europe. She'll be joining Man City in January. But there are some, and like you said, Marta, who's probably the greatest player. And it's just, <laughs> you see this, there's so much potential. And I was really disappointed to see those empty chairs and stands. I mean, I watched the match online, which was another thing I'm really grateful for. And WSL is really good with providing online access. I don't have TV channels. So right. if I did, I would definitely get Lifetime. Hi, Lifetime, please sponsor our podcast. I think that that's, you know, sort of the thing too. And it matters to the culture of soccer and how we grow it. So, I mean, hopefully there'll be lots of, moving forward. Well, I mean, one of the questions is about the neutral stadium site for the finals. And to hold it in Orlando, I mean, if Orlando would have been in the finals, I think that those attendance numbers would have been much higher. And someone suggested, I think it was Caitlin Murray, who wrote this very good piece on the Thorns in the New York Times that we'll link to, that if if you're going to have it, why not just play upon the strengths that you have and have it in Portland? And I think that's not a terrible idea or or thought. I think they need to really think about that. Mm -hmm. I also think the marketing of the international mm -hmm. stars has been particularly poor. I mean, Kaká, now let's face it, Kaká's salary is, you know, $6.5 million yeah. in Orlando. Marta's is 43000 Whoa. So before even criticizing anything, I'd just like to shout out the fact that these women do everything to try to make this league work. And I'm in awe that they get these international stars who are like, you know what? I'm going to keep on keeping on. <laughs> I mean, it is not easy. It is not easy. And you think about those injuries and then you think about that salary, right? But in any case, I think the league could do a better job personally of marketing. I mean, Marta was seriously underplayed. Having Kaká and Marta, why aren't they in spots together reaching out to the Brazilian community in Miami, Orlando, you know, other parts in Florida? So, you know, I just I hope that it continues. It's the fifth complete season. So it is the the longest we've had a women's professional league. And, and, and I celebrate those women and I appreciate what they're doing. 
Yeah, I mean, this year we saw the minimum salary jump for the NWSL. It jumped from $7,200 last year to $15,000 this year, which is a significant increase, but that just shows you that there's still just such a long way to go for a lot of these players. If they are on national teams, I know the U.S. women's national team, there's a different salary structure for them. But for the players who aren't on national teams – who Mm -hmm. make up the bread and butter of what the league is. I mean, you need those stars, but you also need to fill these rosters with really talented players, right? You need them to be able to commit to the day-in, day-out thing. I mean, you're not all going to be Marta. You're not all going to be Alex Morgan. You're going to need the rest of the league. So I think they've seen some big strides, and I don't want to in any way diminish just the fact that the NWSL is still here and is still thriving, and U.S. soccer has done a good job supporting it. But there's a lot more that can be done. I mean, the the NWSL didn't have a commissioner all year long. It still doesn't have a commissioner. Amanda Mm -hmm. Duffy has kind of been the acting commissioner, but she's still just the managing director. And there's a lot of questions as far as, like you said, like marketing. And look, I'm hopeful that Lifetime will figure out this marketing thing, but it's got a long way to go. It's an excellent point, Lindsay. I'm feeling like you should be commissioner. (laughs) You know, (laughs) Okay, let, let's My minimum gears. salary is much bigger than 15000 I would like to say, if they want yes. me. <laughs> I'm sure it's a volunteer position. Okay, let's shift gears a bit. This week's World Cup qualifiers were absolutely stunning. There are a few draws left in, in December, and November, actually, in the, in the African Confederation, But we now know most of the 32 teams that will participate from the 209 in the 2018 World Cup in Russia. This week, I had a triple screen going. I was sweating. I was yelling. Shireen, I feel like you probably shared a lot of those same feelings. How'd you do this week? My heart is racing just to talk about this. It's it's so exciting. What a week this was. First of all, I need to start with Egypt and Mohamed Salah, who should be also co-president with Christine Sinclair of the world. He equalized and pushed Egypt ahead in the last three minutes of a match and the reactions of fans worldwide to Egypt qualifying for the World Cup. There was such joy, such tremendous joy. And you see this and there's people crying and celebrating in the streets of Cairo and his own Twitter feed. And he's normally quite humble. He was just like, no, I'd like this. We're going to celebrate this. And it was a wonderful moment because, I mean, I don't even remember the last time Egypt was in the World Cup. It's beautiful. And from, from AFC right now, sorry, the AFCON, what we know now is Nigeria will definitely go. Egypt will go. And I think that it's just, it's been quite a ride. And, and, and you know, the, the CAF, the African Confederation is actually very competitive. So when Egypt won over Congo, oh, so it says 1990 is the last time Egypt was there. So some kids haven't seen Egypt go to the World Cup in their lifetime. My kids are Canadian <laughs> born, so they haven't either, but that's not the point here. The point is, is that the pharaohs, like, this is incredible. <laughs> like, the pharaohs are amazing. And, you know, we're, they've won the Cup of Nations a couple times, but going to the World Cup is the grand stage. Let's be honest. 
And the keeper is the keeper is the oldest keeper in history, right? He's forty one. I believe that there's hope for us, Sheree. Yeah, there's hope. Well, Gianluigi Buffon will be forty one this year, the Italian keeper. So let's see what happens. Like, yeah, he you know he goes as well. He, I'm sure he's starting. So there, you know, there's hope for yeah, Brenda. Let's go to the World Cup. <laughs> Tunisia is qualified. Is is going? We're still seeing. It, it's important to recognize that we're still seeing playoffs. So Africa is. I feel like is the last to give their births. So it's coming. Mm-hmm. So we're going to see DR Congo. They The Côte d'Ivoire will host Morocco November 11th. Like we're seeing in November between the 10th and the 15th of November, there's still playoff matches to qualify. Senegal will face twice against Bafana. And then we'll see what happens there. There's a couple more. We know that Brazil is going, Uruguay is going, Argentina is going, Colombia is going. Peru has a playoff match versus New Zealand. That date hasn't been announced yet, but Honduras versus Australia. Australia is November 10th and then on the 15th. We know that Russia is going, Belgium is going, Germany, England, Spain, Poland, Serbia, Iceland, France, and Portugal. That's from UEFA. There's still playoff matches to be had between Switzerland, Italy, Croatia, Denmark, Northern Ireland, Sweden, the Republic of Ireland, and Greece. So completely out of the running from UEFA is Turkey and Holland. So that means we will not see Aryan Robin or Van Persie, which is pretty stunning considering the women's side won the Euros this year. But it's totally fine with me after the way Robin's treated Mexico. (laughs) Yeah, I don't like Robin at all. So I'm not crying. He actually announced international retirement after they lost. And I don't care at all. I'm fine with it. Yeah, we're good with it. Burn It All Down has accepted Robin's retirement. Yeah. That's the official <laughs> news. Really? Happily. Um, so from CONCACAF, we've got Mexico, Costa Rica, Panama. Playoff will be, as I mentioned, Honduras. So out is the United States. And I know we probably want to chat about mm. this and we'll segue into that as well. I will mention that Canada, I'm feeling Canada has not qualified for the World Cup, has sorry, only had one World Cup appearance in 1986 and has not been seen since. So I'll talk about all the saltiness from the United States later and sort of rebut with my own feelings. But okay, just before we move on to that discussion, in terms of the Asian Federation, Iran has qualified, Japan has qualified, South Korea and Saudi Arabia have qualified. And like I said, Australia is in a playoff position against Honduras. So that's what we've seen so far. Happy to jump back to more discussion, Bren, about Sunil Jalati. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. I mean, we should talk the U.S. Before we leave the international scene, I, ha- I can't leave without a shout out to the epic, epic hat trick of Leo Messi, who carried the nation of Argentina to the World Cup at that a- away game in Ecuador. I don't know if you guys saw it, but it was it, I haven't seen anything like that in quite a long time. It was glorious. I mean, there are Pity. 11. You thought it was glorious too, Lynn? Yes. <laughs> Not just me. So, you know, I, I feel bad for Chile, obviously. They just are the, the reigning champions of Copa America. It was really weird to see them go out that way. But they've never in their history won a home game, in, like an away game in Brazil. So the expectations that, and that's since, you know, that's actually literally since 1916. Wow. So it's a, that's a long-standing tradition. And so I wasn't surprised, but I was sad to see the pressure on them wow. and that generation of players who are being picked apart in Chile instead of the, you know, corrupt federation. And oh my gosh, Brazil. Whoo. 
coming up huge. I expect Neymar, Coutinho, and Paulinho to continue that sort of run. Okay. Well, but so, yeah. just with Brazil, yeah. Yeah, yeah, there's yeah. a lot of yeah. expectations because they completely crashed out of their own host World oh, Cup yeah. in, in 2014. So the expectations, and we all felt David Luiz's tears. Like I cried along with him. <laughs> So, I, <laughs> for I, me, it's kind of like Michael Jordan tears. Yeah, like I'm not. No, I'm not, it's not <laughs> I don't, but do you? but <laughs> I do. I have a soft spot for Luis. But uh, the thing is, is that totally agree. I Messi is just. But it was uh, in a way you expect him to come in on his angel wings and do that. <laughs> you expect him to come in with a hat trick in the last like one minute of the game because that's what he does <laughs> and it's just even angel de maria's face someone took a photo and i retweeted it. he was in shock he's like, I know. like why are we standing on this pitch it was it was just <laughs> who <phenomenal>. needs me <laughs> he literally looked like i'm useless and i agree a hundred percent i don't know what he was doing with like half of those it was like angel de maria like what how did you even get on this team i mean i was very annoyed with him the last two games and when he said, when he looked at the camera, like, why am I here? I was like, yeah, why are you here? Okay. Because if you can't get a pass from Messi, I don't know. Like, my kids could take a pass from Messi. <laughs> I mean, you know what I mean? I was absolutely frustrated. So, yeah, he came down on angel wings. I w- we all need a Messi in our life, like a Hail Mary. Yeah. So I wish Chile could have borrowed him for like 10 minutes. <laughs> and the U.S. could have borrowed him for like five. So let's talk about that hand ringing about the U.S. I mean – I was pretty annoyed that the conversation left out the women when it talks about systemic problems in U.S. soccer and how men's teams, you know, not qualifying. It means that there's a systemic problem in U.S. soccer and it very rarely even considered the U.S. women's national team. But how do you guys feel all the feelings about U.S. team right now? I can go. <laughs> People want me to. I agree with your point, Brenda, but I do want to say yeah. that, that there are a little slightly different pipelines and there's slightly different problems to consider because men, male athletes have so many more options, especially in U.S. sports. And I think the visibility of those sports really hampers the development of soccer in the United States. It's kind of similar to tennis in that way, but also it's similar to tennis where it's a very much a pay for play system a lot of the way. So I think that there are programs in place to address that and to change the training styles and, and kind of modernize the game a little bit and figure out what we're doing wrong. But I don't think I was quite as bothered by a lot of people were as a lot of people were with I think that the, team and the women's team are, are different teams. I was upset when there wasn't a clarification that this is the men's soccer we're talking about, right? Like, I think that there just needs to, we need to remember to clarify it in that way so that U.S. soccer as a whole doesn't default to the men. And that's a problem in sports as a whole. I had a problem with the conversation being a little bit about, oh, how will our children be inspired? <laughs> because like I've mentioned, I live in Canada. My children have never had the opportunity to be inspired by Canadian <laughs> soccer players that are male. So my sons have always looked to the women's team, like starting as far back when my kids were pretty small, like, you know, following learning how to head the ball from Christine Sinclair and this conversation about, oh, well, you know, how will the kids be inspired or they look to it's a grand stage. Yeah, well, we just have to retrain our children to not see that and just look at fantastic footballers, you know, and that's, that's really important. I do, I feel sad for, I mean, okay, I was giggling watching, like, looking at my Twitter. I mean, I feel sad for Americans, like, I'm sorry, you're really upset, but come on. 
Like, let's be realistic <laughs> here. Like, I mean, I'm going to get so much anger from people. And I'm sorry. I know you love your, your your soccer. But, I mean, isn't it a lovely compensation that you have the reigning world champions also? Like, you know, here's the mug for all your tears. It still stinks, though. I mean, honestly, because there's going to be a whole World Cup next year and there's not going to be a team. Like, it's not like there's a Women's World Cup yeah. happening at the same time, you know. I was still disappointed. And anyone who knows me know I'm, knows I'm not, like, the biggest men's soccer fan. Like, I'm not a stand, but I, I have great memories from the last World Cup going to bars and watching it with a lot of American fans. It, just like I do from the Women's World Cup, but it's just a summer where that won't be the case, right, you know, for at American bars. And that's that, to me, that's okay to be disappointed about. <laughs> No, I understand. I well, actually, I don't understand because my team's never actually been to the World <laughs> Cup. But I, I hear you. That's that's a good point. That's a fair point. Well, and and I do think that Michael Bradley's. Well, I mean, a lot of their kind of comments on inclusion of of a more diverse population have been really progressive. And Clint Dempsey on the wall and criticizing the idea of the wall, given their closeness with Mexico. So I have a soft spot for a lot of the players myself, because I think they embrace the world because they do embrace soccer in this way, which is an alternate sport in the United States. It is a fourth sport, right? Okay. So this is a really exciting moment in the midst of these men's qualifiers when a lot of women's sides are refusing to to take a back seat. Jessica? Yeah, I think we're in this moment. And it was interesting to watch. I was just, I didn't watch them U.S. men lose, but I was watching on Twitter and everyone sort of freaking out. And we did have this conversation of like, you know, the U.S. is not going to the World Cup and they haven't, you know, they haven't missed it in decades. And and the way that they were just, the women were alighted from a lot of that, right, in ways that were upsetting to people. And they kept reminding everyone that the U.S. has actually won three World Cups, right? And part of the issue around that is that so many people leave women out as actual players. They don't they don't think of them when they think of sport. And we can see this directly when we look at the the economics of it, right? That the pay disparity. And so earlier this year was a huge story for the US women's team. You know, back in April, they had a very public at the end of a public and prolonged fight with US soccer that included the women filing a wage discrimination complaint with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the EEOC, they agreed to a new set of wages and a collective bargaining agreement with the U.S. Soccer Federation. They're not getting equal pay necessarily, but they are getting substantial raises. It's a really big deal. And this is you know, part of a really long story about women soccer teams demanding better treatment. When I was thinking about this, I was thinking about how the Japanese Soccer Federation back in 2012, there was a huge thing around the Olympics where the women who had just won the World Cup were in the economy section and the men who are not remarkable were in the business. In 2015, the Australian women's team, the Matildas, they canceled a sellout tour in the U.S. saying that their pay was so low that it was illegal. And as we've talked about before on the show, firing of the first woman to lead the Brazil to lead Brazil's national team has caused several top players to retire in protests and there's been a torrent of criticism in Brazil against the National Soccer Federation over several issues related to women and this included a scathing open letter penned by former players last month the Danish women's team went on a strike after they had were runners up in the Euro Championships they refused to play a friendly 
Their complaint is that the Danish Football Association, the DBU, does not want to classify the women as employees, which you can imagine is so they don't have to pay them as they should. To their credit, the entire Danish Professional Footballers Association strongly opposes this. In order to help ease the way, the men's team in Denmark offered 500,000 Danish kroners, which is about 60,000 pounds a year from their agreement with the DBU to the women's national team. But then according to the president of the Players Association, quote, this was on the condition of the Danish FA, the Footballers Association, securing the same basic rights for the women in their agreement as the men have in theirs. The DBU has unfortunately decided to reject this offer. Shireen pointed out to us this morning before we started recording that the current talks between the FA and the DBU are are breaking down. Argentina's, yeah, Argentina's women's team, Brenda's been sort of the one pushing this and around for English speakers, they went on strike last month as well because they weren't being paid at all. And we've talked about this before on the show. When they are paid, it can be as low as $8.50 per training session. Mm Mm-hmm. For their August 30th friendly against Uruguay, no hotel was provided for the team as they traveled from 4 a.m. to 9 a.m. They had to sleep on the bus. And then the last thing I want to say before I throw it to you guys, it'd be wrong to launch into this conversation without noting what recently happened in Norway, which is similar-ish to what was going on in Denmark. Their football association and the players union agreed to a deal in which male and female players will receive the same financial compensation because the men will be making a financial contribution to the women's team. According to The Guardian, quote, the Norwegian FA has announced it is almost doubling the remuneration pot for the women from 3.1 million Norwegian kroner to a total of 6 million kroner. This includes a contribution of 550,000 kroner by the male players, money they currently receive for commercial activities undertaken as part of the national teams. This is all of this together, just thinking of like all of these women from around the world rising up to say, no, we deserve more. We're players too. We matter to these countries is so amazing and inspiring. What are your guys' thoughts on this? Well, I mean, I think it's really, really important to recognize that this is systematically a problem held all over the world. I mean, we saw Nigeria, the women's team last year actually had to strike. They hadn't been paid despite winning the tournament oh, wow. in the entire continental tournament. They were not paid. They had they had to sit in in the hotel in Lagos. And this has just been, we see it everywhere. We've seen it, and I, I'm, I will be torching this later, but just to reference it, the corrupt officials, and keeping in mind that officials and um, execs of national federations are men. Let's be clear on this. This is around the world. This is globally up to FIFA. We're talking in every different federation. And it, we, it is looking at the women's game differently and the players differently and how they should be treated. Also, I remember Professor Jean Williams, a historian on football and, and women's football particularly, told us a couple of years ago that there's no federation in the world that funds the men's side equally as they do the women's. So and this was this was before the last World Cup, the Women's World Cup. So I'm happy to see that progressing in Norway. I totally agree. And on that note, a lot of the comments that we get when we push for women's equal pay claims that the marketplace (laughs) determines it and that women should make equal profit in terms of spectatorships before they ask, ask for equal pay. And I'd just like to put out a reminder there that these national teams are subsidized by the state from taxes that everybody pays. So it's not fair to cast the argument in that light. Okay. So, and on that exact note, we have a very special interview for this week. 
The first signatures and indeed co-authors of the open letter to the Brazilian Confederation or the CBF that Jessica referred to earlier were Tafa and Sissi. And for those less obsessed with Brazilian women's soccer, Tafa and Sissi are both legendary players and coaches now residing in California. Sissi participated in the 1988 FIFA Invitational in China and was awarded the Golden Boot for the seven goals she scored in the 1999 Women's World Cup. Both of them, uber-talented midfielders, graciously agreed to be interviewed about the letter this week. Today, Burn It All Down is honored to have Sissy and Tafa, two legendary Brazilian internationals whose names topped the recent open letter from women's soccer players to the Brazilian Federation that we call CBFA or CBF. So today we're going to talk to them about the letter and the reaction to it. Hi, thank you both for being with us. Thank you for having us. Pleasure. Yeah. It's always good to talk to you guys. So both of your names top this open letter. Could you just describe to listeners what the letter is asking for? I start thinking about the letter, not exactly the letter, but this is tough, by the way. <laughs> I start to talk about some options of what to do with Moya Dodd, that uh, she worked for FIFA before, especially yeah. in, a, in a council of equality, gender equality. And uh, after Emily Lima was fired from, from the national team, I felt that we needed to do something about it. So we contact Moya and we ask her what we can do to make this go around the world because I think it's, it's some kind of discrimination to fire Emily after 10 months of uh, work and, you know, and not enough time to implement what she, he, she had in mind, you know. So Moya gave some ideas and we brainstormed and we got to the point that we said, okay, what about if we do this ladder? And the next day, some players from the national team start to retire. So Cristiani was the first one, then came a friend and the other players. And we thought that there was the moment. So we, we had to do something really is strong about we had to speak up and and be re really be strong in our positions that there was not okay so there is when we start to to figure it out okay let's let's put this ladder and let's see if we more people can enjoy the ladder giving some quotes um, so we can send you know around the world to the media around the world and cbf can feel the pressure and that is when we start to you know put our thoughts together and put in a letter. And when we published, we were kind of expecting that we would get some support, but it was really, I think, uh, beyond our, our expectations, uh, the support that we got. We didn't know at that point that, you know, our letter is going to, it was going to cause like a big impact, like, what, before, I would say 24 hours. We were very surprised. But I think, the fact that Emily was fired and the fact also that Christianity decided to speak up, I think that's when we finally realized we got to do something, you know, because we had a very similar situation before, you know, Taf and I, when we all played for the national team, there are a lot of things that Christianity mentioned during an interview that it also helped happen with us, but we never thought 
that at this point, you know, a player like her is going to, you know, at this point come out and say, okay, this, this is how I feel. This is what we need to do. So for you both, what are the top changes? Like what are the most important changes you would like to see? Well, the main thing I think is the structure. You know, we feel that we have been playing soccer for more than 30 years. The first national team was in 1988. It's going to be, you know, 30 years of the first national team to be selected. And we didn't see a lot of changes in these 30 years. Pretty much is the same with, uh, you know, small improvements. And I think the world is improving a lot. You know, we have in South America, Venezuela, Colombia, Ecuador that have, you know, youth soccer is, is getting stronger and stronger each time because they are they are investing in, in, in future generations. And we see that Brazil was stuck in the same mentality and the same priority. So my point is we need to make sure that the future generation has a better structure than they we have right now and we, that we had in the past. I think they have to have a better structure. They have to have a, a more professional mind. And I think professionalism in Brazil is necessary because, you know, right now, kids that play soccer in Brazil, girls that play soccer in Brazil, they don't have that vision of being a career in the future because we don't have that structure. So a lot of talents are lost in Brazil because families don't encourage them to, to follow their dreams, you know. Families are saying, you know, that is not a career. That is not going to uh, make you to, to survive in that macho culture, you know. So first we need to open their minds to change the mentality in Brazil and make sure that the families encourage the girls to follow their, their dreams, changing the structure that we have up there. Obviously, we know that it's not only CBF that needs to change the mentality. It's all the, 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 the organizations the, that runs the, the soccer in Brazil, you know, since federations, mm-hmm. state federations, local, local uh, what do you say, districts that need, needs to encourage the, the women to with tournaments and things like that. But this needs to happen. This needs to change because if not, we're going to continue to suffer with development of these, these girls. And we mm-hmm. are not going to have future generations to, to continue to do what we have been doing for 30 years. Also, we are looking to, of course, we want to be asked to give an opportunity for ex-former players to get a position, you know. And we know that they are like working to get their license, but also they are not get a chance to work in Brazil. So... It's like it's all together. New York is a lot of pressure. Yeah, it's, it's like, not it's not fighting for the fact that Emily was fired. That's not that. I think it's everything. We are trying to make sure that that's the time we want to see changes. But it's not like that's they keep it happening. Oh, we're gonna do this, but never happen. So we see here. You know, you can see the structure, the opportunity yeah. over here. It's at same time it's different than it, that is in Brazil. So that's what we would like to see over there as well. Have you heard anything in response? Yes. To the letter? Yes. Yeah, after 24 hours, after 24 hours that we wrote the letter and we publishing so- social media and New York Times also, uh, you know, put it there. Mm-hmm. And so 24 hours, the president of CBF said that he, uh, I received a call from 
from one of his assistants saying that uh, he's opened his agenda to receive uh, a group of former players to discuss further what needs to be done in, in a women's soccer in Brazil. And the meeting is going to be October 17th. Next Tuesday. Okay. Next Tuesday. Wow. Are you? Are either of you going? We cannot go, but we're going to participate through video conference. So we're going to be in video. Okay. Unfortunately, a lot of players that sign the letter are overseas. They are not living in Brazil. So we're going to have two representatives face-to-face. And we're going to have, hopefully, Formiga is going gonna, is gonna to be able also to participate in video conference. But we're going to have three or four players that, former players that signed the letter participating through video conference. Why do you think some well-known players have been reluctant to sign the letter? That is a point to really, uh, it's hard to talk in that point because, you know, each one has their mind. I think is is you know, is is what you think about, how you can help about. Some players felt that, like Cristiani, I think she was for so long in the national team that she felt that this is the time that for her, she needs to make an impact leaving the national team, you know, to create this debate. She, she thought that she needs to leave the national team to create the debate. Mm-hmm. I think for other players, it's more like, I still think that I can make difference being inside. I hope so. I hope that those players really make sure that they make the impact inside. But we don't hear too much about it, you know. So I praise, I praise what Cristiani did because it takes a lot of courage. And I think, you know, when you are to the point that you, you, you leave the women's soccer for so long, all the problems that women's soccer have in Brazil, you leave that for so long, that you feel that the way that you're going to impact is living your dreams, that for me tells something about your character. So I really praise what Cristiani did. And she gave, I think, the fact that maybe people say, oh, but Cristiani is at the end of her career. That's, that's not exactly. I can see that she still could help the national team. We respect, you know, those ones that decide Hey, the best thing is for us to do something with the national team. We respect that. But I think we got to look overall everything. So definitely, I think when I saw the video, I it was, be, it, it was very powerful. Because, you know, after we can say Martin Cristiani has been, of course, with Fumiga. This generation, especially Cristiani, she's already did a lot for the national team. So yeah. we felt that, you know, it's, we, it's not obligation, but we felt we, that that's the time for us to do something. And we, I have to say, you know, contacting a lot of people to see how much they were willing to help. You know, we, we've been, especially Tafa, I can't believe it, it's like 24-7 mm-hmm. trying to contact people and figure it out what we can do. It's been a lot of work. So at the end... I hope we can make some change. We can see the change. And because this, we, this is what we will be looking for for all these years. So it's yeah. tough. But I what keeps you going? What keeps you going after all of those years? How do you find the motivation to pick yourselves up? The passion. The this passion. Is the passion. The, yeah, yeah. You know? And I think living here, you can see also. You know? So living in California, you mean? Yeah, in the United States, is, we can see how much. You know, 
how much soccer, women's soccer grow over here. So we know that Brazil is the country of soccer, correct? But when you think Brazil, the country of soccer is for the men's, that, that is the thing. You know, when we talk about our experience in women's soccer, they say, no, I cannot believe that you guys went through that because, you know, Brazil is the country of soccer. But I said, yes, but the reality for the women's soccer in Brazil is completely different. If we think about women's soccer, the country of women's soccer is U.S. because all the structure, all the levels, of the, all the different levels, all the amount of kids, girls that play soccer here, this is the country of women's soccer. When we think about women's soccer, Brazil is still just in the beginning of the the things up there. And that is our fight because everything is slow there. You know, you don't see a lot of changes in stru- structure because we live in a culture where it's a macho culture, you know, it's very sexist sometimes. And we need to fight that because, you know, sometimes people think that the girls that uh, play, they related the, the girls that play soccer to uh, sexual orientation. Oh, they relate the, the girls that play soccer in Brazil with a kind of sexual object, you know. So they mm-hmm. it cannot be like that. We need to change, you know. Girls play soccer because they love soccer, you know. They love the sport. It's not because they want to make the fantasy, sexual fantasy for, for guys up there. They just want to be able to play the sport that they love. And unfortunately, in a macho culture that we lived, we have to always fight for, fight for, fight for better quality of tournaments, or we need to fight for better structure, or we need to fight for better wages, or we need to fight for... So we need to fight for everything up there. And, you know, it's 30 years of fighting, 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 and, and we are in a point that, okay, or we change, effectively change right now with FIFA giving the support, Oh, we're going to be behind of uh, other nations a lot, you know, because other nations are improving and we are not. Yeah, yeah. Well, I thank you both so much for your time today. I hope you know that Burn It All Down supports you and, and values you and we admire you so much in your fight. Thank you so much, Brenda. Thank you for the opportunity. We appreciate thank it. Thank you. Okay, now it's time for everyone's favorite segment. We call it the burn pile, where we pile up all the things we've hated this week in sports and set them aflame. Jessica, want to strike the first match? Yeah, I do. In 2014, an independent report commissioned by the University of North Carolina found for 18 years, UNC had offered paper classes, classes that that only exist on paper, to at least 3,100 students, and then academic advisors funneled athletes into programs that kept them fraudulently eligible. By 2014, the scandal was already five years old. UNC has fired four employees for it. They disciplined five more. One former football coach admitted he did know about the paper classes. Another said he had some idea about it. Famed championship-winning basketball coach Roy Williams has constantly denied he knew anything, but the longtime academic advisor and her successor for a former basketball coach, the legendary Dean Smith, did know. To be clear, this fraud went beyond the money-making sports and was widespread within the athletic department. This week, the NCAA's Committee on Infractions, which was given this report three years ago, said 
It, quote, could not conclude that the University of North Carolina violated NCAA academic rules and did not levy any significant penalties against UNC. Uh-huh. SEC Commissioner Greg Sankey, the panel's chief hearing officer, explained, quote, while student athletes likely benefited from the courses, so did the general student body. Additionally, the record did not establish that the university created and offered the courses as part of a systemic effort to benefit only student athletes. I mainly just want to laugh at this point because it feels so ridiculous and so blatantly obvious what they're doing. But I'll just go ahead and state that obvious so there's no confusion. The NCAA is not concerned about amateurism and sport because of some dedication to students' educations. That is so clear. This is a cop-out of a reason to not punish the school in what is considered the largest known athletics and academic fraud scandal. What is the NCAA even for? Spoiler alert, the answer is making money, and that's it. Burn it. Burn. Burn. Shereen? I already teased about what I want to throw into the incinerator, and I'm really, really frustrated. And I mean, to a degree relieved, but I want to burn the Pakistani Football Federation. It has been suspended by FIFA, and it is actually the only federation to actually have been suspended and it's just it's mind-boggling that this has happened and uh, my friend Natasha Raheel she writes for the Express Tribune in in Karachi and she will link this piece to the show notes and she actually says that and she explains that the that FIFA threatened with a suspension in May and what ended up happening is that there's basically and, and what you could call a football despot. Mahdoum Saeed Faisal Saleh Hayat, he was accused of rigging the results and accused of manipulation by people, which is, to be honest, in a lot of times with anything to do with football elections is commonplace with these internal power struggles and narcissism and like incredible amounts of machismo. But what ended up happening is they appealed to a court in Lahore, Pakistan, which then appointed an administrator who took over the offices of the PFF. Now, but what happens is FIFA suspended it specifically because of the accordance with the fact that it it stated undue third-party reference. So you can't have a court of law, a recognized sovereign court of law, overseeing the federation at all. Because FIFA's position, and which is incredibly ironic and funny, is that it has to be able to manage it itself with impartiality. So that's the formal reason why. Now, my opinion, the PFF is like the cesspool of sexism that doesn't support its female players, that actually becomes an obstacle to players who are playing overseas. And I think this is this is really important. And I spoke with Natasha about this. And I think the other problem ends up happening is the PFF doesn't support as I mentioned, it's players. And there's a player named Kalimullah who was the first Pakistani to play outside. And he was so frustrated because, as I mentioned before, the federations are supposed to advocate for their players. And my friend Hajar Khan is actually captain of the women's side. And she has the first woman to play outside. She played in a league in the Maldives. And she expressed publicly in an article also published in the Tribune previously that one of her teammates mentioned that they're impeding the progress of the women. And this was around not being able to attend the South Asian Football um, Federation tournament. And that's the only prominent tournament in the entire region for those women. So the fact that the PFF couldn't get their shit together and support women's sport, just burn, burn it. Burn it. 
Burn it. Lindsay, what do you want to throw on the pile? Jerry Jones, please. <laughs> just in general. Every day, all day. Always, forever. I'm just going to redo a few of Jerry Jones's quotes. I'd like to note that we are recording this on Sunday morning, so we do not know what is going to happen in the NFL today as far as the anthem, the protest during the national anthem. But we do know what Jerry Jones wants to happen with his team and with all teams, which is nothing. Let me read you Jerry Jones, in case you don't know, the owner of the Dallas Cowboys. If anything that is disrespectful to the flag, then we will not play, Jones told reporters last week. Understand we will not. If we are disrespecting the flag, then we will not play, period. Okay, side note, if you say period when you're talking, you're just a jerk. Like, that is just like a horrible thing to do. But anyways, Jerry Jones went on to then talk about how he clearly understood Vice President Mike Pence and why Vice President Mike Pence walked out and essentially bought into the narrative that that Vice President Mike Pence and President Donald Trump are setting that protests during the national anthem equal disrespect for America. Jones went on to say, we cannot in the NFL in any way give the implication that we tolerate disrespecting the flag. I know the vice president did leave because in his opinion, the teams were. We know that there is a serious debate in this country, but there is no question that the NFL and the Dallas Cowboys are going to stand up for the flag. This is all crap. If his players want to make a stand and kneel during the national anthem as a way to protest systemic racism and police brutality, Jerry Jones should be supporting him. This is a man who supports the scum of the earth football players. The least he can do is support players who are actually trying to raise awareness for a good cause and one that needs to be tackled. Jerry Jones has also talked about how unfairly Ezekiel Elliott has been treated. Ezekiel Elliott's six-game suspension was reinstated, and Jerry Jones just went on to say how unfair that was. So burn, burn. Oh, oh, burn. Burn Burn it. Burn it so big. Okay, left to me. Last week, my burn pile goes to Manchester City and the English FA because last week, Manchester City's Pauline Bremer, 21 years old, suffered a deep leg fracture in an away game against Everton. During the Women's Super League Classic, they failed to have proper medical services, and she waited over an hour for an ambulance, screaming in pain. It turns out there is currently no stipulation that emergency medical services be present. And even though ambulances must be present at men's professional games, apparently the English FA did not see fit to do the same thing for the women's games. Pauline will be okay. She had surgery and she's she's posted some pictures on Instagram. But who knows about her recovery and how it was impacted by her weight for the medical services. So I want to burn this lack of foresight that this happened to Pauline and her teammates who suffered watching her in complete distress. I would like to just burn that down. Burn. Burn. Okay, after the cathartic burning of all that hostility toward patriarchy and racism, let's celebrate some wonderful women's achievement with our badass women of the week. We'd like to preface this all by recognizing the courage of those survivors of sexual harassment and assault who are navigating a particularly difficult media and cultural landscape right now. It's perhaps beyond the badass woman of the week category, but it shouldn't go without mention. The honorable mention for badass woman of the week goes to Dana Castellanos, the only woman to be nominated for a Puskas Award. We're adding the link and we encourage you to check it out and vote for her. 
This is for the best goal. This is FIFA's for those of you who aren't who aren't obsessed with football. It is FIFA's award for the best goal of the year. Okay, and the winner is. Can I get a drum roll? <laughs> Thank That's you so the sound much. My babies used to make. <laughs> <laughs> We're amazing at that. Is Esther Staubley, who became the first woman to officiate a men's match at a U-17 World Cup match between Japan and New Caledonia and Kolkata, India this past week. Staubley, who we might remember presided over the glorious women's Euros of 2017, would like to say when interviewed, it's impossible to live from refereeing. And guess what she does? She teaches agriculture. Cow milking, for example. So what is more badass? Congratulations to Esther Staubley and all the players who get the honor to be officiated by her. Yes. Finally, in the sometimes dark days that are 2017, let's talk about what's lifting us up this week. Shireen. I'm really excited to say that I'm going to be visiting Grand Valley State University next week, and I'll be speaking about Muslim women in sport, the history of, and the future, hopefully. And I'm excited about that, and that'll be next Tuesday. I'll be there, and I'm really excited to meet one of Bernard Aldown's favorite sports historians, Dr. Lou Moore. So I'm excited about that. Okay. For me, it's Halloween. I'm pretty excited. I've got a good pumpkin carving game. <laughs> I'm going on some some pumpkin picking field trips, and I'm going as Hippolyta, Wonder Woman's mom. <laughs> so I'm I'm pretty stoked about my mom game this week and and Halloween. Lindsay, this was actually a hard week for me to come up with anything, but I would like to say the fact that Roxanne Gay, the amazing feminist writer, and Channing Tatum, who she has vocally had a crush on for a very long time, and who is amazing, they are working on a collaboration together. And I'm just going to yes. post their tweet in the show notes because I've never seen two people look so happy to be working together. And that tweet has gotten me through some dark moments. Oh, <laughs> it brought me such joy. She has a crush on Channing Tatum. Oh, she yes, loves it's amazing, him. Shireen. Oh, she loves him so that. much. <laughs> and half for years. For years. That's lovely. So that is yes. so sweet. I'd like to say that I'm not happy to work with you guys. Oh, uh, yeah. I don't. I don't know if the feeling's quite that visual for me. I mean, she's really happy, you guys. Like, Lindsay Gibbs. I'm happy, but Lindsay I don't know that Gibbs. I'm Roxanne Gay with Channing Tatum happy. Like, <laughs> we're gonna get there. We're gonna get there. Jess. Yeah. Wow. Before I went to Berlin, I asked friends for podcast recommendations. And from those, I started listening to this podcast called You Must Remember This, which is hosted by Karina Longworth. She's fabulous. It's about the forgotten or ignored history of Hollywood in the 20th century. I don't even know how to explain it, but it's it's so brilliant and it's so compelling. And I had heard of it because there's an amazing 12-part series that she did on Charlie Manson's Hollywood a couple years ago. And you should check that out. But the latest season is a side-by-side of the lives of the careers lives and careers of Jean Seberg and Jane Fonda, both actresses who became politically active and trailed by the FBI. I found myself taking extra long walks this week with my dog so that I could listen to it more. So you must remember this. Thank you for getting me through what was a very hard week. Okay, that's it for this week at Burn It All Down. Burn It All Down lives on SoundCloud, but can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. We appreciate your reviews and feedback, so please subscribe and rate let us know what we did well and how we can improve. You can find us on Facebook at Burn It All Down, on Twitter at Burn It All Down Pod, and you can email us 
at burnitalldownpod at gmail.com. Check out our website, www.burnitalldownpod.com. You see the theme. And you can also find a link to our GoFundMe campaign. We would appreciate any consideration for a contribution so that we can keep doing the work we love to do and keep burning what needs to be burned. For Shereen Ahmed, Lindsay Gibbs, Jessica Luther, and myself, Brenda Elsie, thanks for joining us and have the best possible week. Hey, hey.